Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, and welcome to One's Too Many, a podcast dedicated to helping veterans and first responders get through the struggles they might be facing internally or externally. Hear interviews with special guests and experts. So whether you're struggling with transition, depression, or even problems at work, we're here for you to give you actionable advice and examples of how you can get through them and succeed by those who have struggled too. I'm your host, Adam Salters, and thanks for listening. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of One's Too Many. With me today, I have psychologist, veteran, ultramarathon runner, and author, Barry Zwarstein. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on this. Much appreciated. Oh, absolutely. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, I was born in what was then southern Rhodesia in the 50s. Um, um, in the 70s, after having spent three years, four years at university, I returned and fought in the Rhodesian Bush War. 1970, two, three, four, five, 1976, 77, and then came out of that um, experience and went back to university. I was a teacher for many years and then sort of realized I had a bit of, make a bit of a change. So after working for 10 years, went back and qualified in South Africa to be a clinical psychologist. I eventually meandered my way through a number of countries and arrived, back, arrived in Australia and in Australia, the Vietnam Veterans Counseling Services were, had just got permission from the government to, to employ external contractors to work with veterans and their families and the kids. So 16, 16, 17 years ago, I was contracted by them and um, have been with them since then. Um, and I've had the privilege of working with um, guys from World War II, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, and um, a large contingent of guys from regular infantry to special force individuals. So I've had a, an amazing experience, <laughs> learned a lot. And, you know, as I say in my book, um, as much as I may have impacted on their lives, these guys have certainly impacted on my life. <laughs> no, absolutely. Okay, so I don't really know how, or how Rhodesia works, but I know the National Service requirement kind of forced you into the Rhodesian Bush War. Did entering, I guess, the service that way give you a different perspective on the war? Because I know a lot of people here, I'm sure there's a big difference from being drafted in Vietnam or World War II as opposed to signing up like voluntarily for Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a good question. You, you're correct. I mean, there was a regular force, and, and um, the rest were call-ups, and you could be called up and then join the regular force. So I got called up after, so I was 23, so mm-hmm. I was quite old because the guys I was fighting with were um, 17, 18 years old, so they were young blokes. I think having a couple of years on me and a bit of experience certainly made the experience a lot more manageable. Mm-hmm. I originally tried to do an officer's course and not with a very bad sense of direction, so uh, <laughs> I was extremely relieved. <laughs> I came off an obstacle, I, I was a gymnast and uh, mm-hmm. just my shoulder. That took me out of that, and um, then I had this dilemma about what was I going to do, so I qualified. I did a three-month, very intensive medic course, and then I joined my unit, and generally, guys with my qualification, I guess like yours, we were supposed to be really based in MI rooms, not on the ground, but um, my unit was on the um, Mozambique border, and the philosophy in that unit was that we were all fully operational, so... 
they um, put me with a stick of three other guys and off we went for seven months. Um, look, it was an amazing experience. I think I learned a lot about life. I came out with some incredible values, you know, reliance and dependability on the guys around you. It was, I think I always describe our war as a very brutal war um, or a very violent war. You know, you don't have, we did not have the constraints that currently current serving guys do have. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a tough war and um, I know that a lot of my generation who were in units like the Commandos or the RLI, for those of you who are familiar with the Rhodesian Bush War, or the Salute Scouts or the SAS, certainly numbers of these guys who in their mid-60s now really struggle with fairly significant post-traumatic stress disorder because many of them were dropped by chopper or parachuted into up to five contacts a day. But, you know, there was a lot of wisdom, and I think that wisdom has really helped me um, work with the guys I sit with because what they talk about is what I understand. What they smelt, what they saw is what I understand. So, in a way, I'm really grateful for that experience. Mm -hmm. Was it difficult transitioning out of that? Yeah, you know, we didn't have any um, support in those Mm -hmm. days. I mean, I don't even think PDSD was even on the cards in 1976-77. So I left um, being fully operational, and three weeks later I was at um, university um, doing another specialist diploma in education. And um, all I knew was that for about six months I struggled with fairly significant body aches and pains. I had migraine-type headaches. And I was waking up about 20 times a night. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really put the two and two together. And about five or six years ago, I spoke to a mate of mine, and I was at university with him, and I said, just give me some insight on how you saw me. And he said, when you came back from the war, he said, everything about you was amped up, your pressure of speech, how you were talking, your vigilance, your movement. And I had no self-reflection on that. And... So, again, you know, this really informs me about the complex levels of guys trying to integrate into civilian life. And I guess more and more that's something I become increasingly more focused on because of all the different layers that impact. It's quite complex and it's quite subtle. So, yeah, transitional issues are huge. They're huge. What do you feel at the time really helped you get past that? Well, I call it the Band-Aid because... (laughs) I had a lot of disruptions, you know, a couple of, one or two marriages went down the drain, five immigrations, and in the end, I began running, and eventually I went from short runs to marathons, and I was running ultra marathons, and I discovered that when I ran, I actually felt at peace, Mm -hmm. and the longer the run, the more at peace I felt. It was those moments where, um, no matter what was going on in my life, things seemed to just be coherent. Mm-hmm. until at one point somebody said to me, you know, what are you running away from? And that kind of hit a fairly tough point in me. And the same realization came to me after about two years of working with veterans and current serving where initially I began to thinking I was really well integrated and on track. And then after hearing the guys talk about their grief and their loss, I also realized that, you know, there was also parts of me that were struggling. Even today, and and my wife and my kids are fairly relaxed with it, in restaurants I choose to sit facing the door. In busy (laughs) shopping centers, my kids always go, look at me, Dad, and 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 it's just my eyes are just looking around. It's almost Mm -hmm. automatic. I'm not even aware of it. And, you know, loud noises, there's still a startle reflex. But 
I mean, I call that a kind of functional mm-hmm. trauma because it doesn't impact on my lives or my, on my life or my relationship. I was lucky in that, unlike um, other units in the Rhodesian Bush War who were subjected to you know, several very close quarter contacts a day, I did not have that experience. Our area was more four of us walking in, in territory where up to 300 terrorists walked. So it was really high states of hypervigilance 24 mm-hmm. hours a day. So as you, know, as you said to me a short while ago, it's the exposure to high stress situations constantly. There's, there's a certain amount where you cross a line and then you impact, your, your impact of trauma is huge. I didn't cross that line and, and for that I'm quite grateful. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, work, you said you work with a lot of veterans. Yeah. Do you ever have them work together to, ha- to hash stuff out or talk it out? Do you think that kind of stuff uh, helps? Uh, the Vietnam Veteran Services, when guys are referred to me, um, it's individual, but they do offer group experiences. Mm-hmm. It does help for some, but you know, the goal of a group experience is to talk about that which gives you, with that which has the most impact on you. Mm-hmm. So for some guys, the group experience drops them what I call in their ambush zone. And that is just simply too traumatic for them. So in many ways, what guys like that need is a more one-to-one mm-hmm. where they can start from the territory they choose and not go into anything that overwhelms them. And I guess this is often the issue I have with a lot of modalities is that they drop guys in their ambush zone. So guys walk in the room and it's, this is what we're going to do and this is what I expect of you. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't work, but a lot of my approach has always been how can I support the men I sit with without doing any harm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my work over 15 years, and in fact, even in the book I wrote, was to create things that people could heal without having to be dropped in highly traumatic experiences. So, yeah, group coming back to it, yeah, group experiences are valuable because you put men back in, men and women, you put them back in tribe, and I guess it comes down to how that group experience is run. Mm-hmm. I know uh, therapy is one of like one of the things that really helped me. I had a hard time immediately starting to talk, as you said, in a group experience. But I know one on one really helped me. Because I know obviously yeah. p- uh, p- everyone's PTSD, wherever they're coming from, is unique. And so I feel like you kind of have to go along with that specific person, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I have ways now of working. I guess the thing, the thing that sets what I'm doing apart from a lot of approaches is that. I base everything I do on operational understanding. So I break neuroscience and the brain down into operational concepts. I talk to guys about learning pull-throughs. I talk to guys about what to do when you're in your ambush zone. How do you move from your ambush zone to your OP? So that's that's not been done before. So you know, my little book, in in many ways, is I, I don't think it's been replicated anywhere else. And I find with the guys, it makes immediate sense. Whereas, you know, when we talk about breathing strategies, they go get a life. But when I talk about how breathing strategy can take you out of your ambush zone where, you know, you're likely to get a stoppage if you don't do a pull-through or you're likely to have a runaway gun, they go, okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. What is a pull-through? Okay, so probably an old term, but you know with the barrel of your weapon, you've got to... (laughs) You're new generation. eh? Uh, You know with the barrel of your weapon, you've got to drop... It's like a weighted thing at the bottom with a bit of oily rag, and mm-hmm. you drop it through and put it through. No, yeah. and it literally cleans. So if you don't clean the barrel, um, 
the next stop is a stoppage. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't clean the barrel, you can end up like with an MAG or a machine gun. You'll end up with a runaway gun. No, yeah. So you know the equivalent of a runaway gun or a, or <laughs> a, a runaway gun or is a guy shooting his mouth off at his maid or giving his wife a hard mm -hmm. time. You know, stoppage. <laughs> okay. is Anxiety, depression, overwhelm. Those mm -hmm. are stoppages. And so I tell the guys, you know, listen, your barrel gets dirty all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, what are you going to do every day? What, what's your pull through? I'll give you a whole lot of tools, but you've got to select some pull throughs. Okay. I like that. <laughs> we talked a little bit about, about stuff like that. People can do at their house by themselves. Can you explain a little more about that? Yes, I use, I use a number of different tools that guys can use. So the one thing is it's, it's some training I did, which is actually used widely in the States with mm -hmm. veterans, and it's called EFT, which is Emotional Freedom Therapy, or it's called tapping. Mm -hmm. And tapping is basically, we defined it as acupuncture without needles. And it looks at various points on the head and the face, on the collarbone, under the arm. And we know because they've done experiments where they put people in scanning machines, and when you tap on these points, the back of the brain lights up. Mm -hmm. And it immediately down-regulates. It brings down the back of the brain. Now, if you think about it, guys will have an experience. So they might have been in an ambush where a mate was lost. So that memory has, every memory we have has an emotion. Mm -hmm. As soon as we open the file called memory, it immediately locks into the emotion from the back of the brain. Now, where you have a traumatic memory with a traumatic emotion, it encapsulates. So that's why guys often can be out of the army for 15 years and suddenly everything goes bang because they've never got to it because it's bricked off to keep it safe. But it's like what I call it's a claymore sitting in your room somewhere just waiting to go pop. Mm -hmm. So when we tap, we first start saying what the issue is and we can be quite vague for people that don't want to get into the ambush zone. And we can go, even though I had this challenging situation in Iraq, I feel I, I choose to care and respect for who I am. So we opening memory, we're using a positive statement, which also has an impact on neural change. And then as we repeat this time in Iraq, um, my trauma, my, um, my poor sleep, my anxiety, my stress, whatever you want to say, we tap on the points. What that does is it removes or decreases the emotion surrounding the encapsulated memory. So eventually, a guy can look at the situation and not have the impacted emotion. Mm -hmm. Now, that means he can be really stressed out at home. He can feel, you know, I often say military guys have, have like periods. They have their menstrual cycles <laughs> because suddenly they're just in this irritable mood. They're vigilant, mm -hmm. they're irritable, and they don't know why. Now, in those moments, tapping is a fabulous thing to do because it puts them back into their bodies and can do no harm. Another thing I teach is um, simple breathing techniques. There's a four, seven, eight breathing technique, which is breathe in for four, hold for seven, out for eight. Mm -hmm. And when we take charge of our breathing, we bring down the back of the brain. Often I tell guys, before you do your breathing, have a bottle of cold water with ice in it. Drink that. Because what that does is the cold water changes the blood flow in your brain. If you're totally freaked out and you're about to have a major runaway gun, get in a cold shower because that stimulates the drowning reflex, mm -hmm. puts you back in your body. And then the last thing I show them are um, more like energy medicine type exercises, and those use a lot of bilateral crossing overs, your body, some qigong type exercises. Mm -hmm. And just doing those exercises combined with tapping and breathing immediately aligns, it's almost the energy centers of the body. 
and, and guys are back in their bodies. Because mm-hmm. that's what we want. When We want to give a guy a thing where you're not going to necessarily get on top of your trauma, but what you can do is get back in your body, feel in control, regroup, get up, dust off, and get back in in a better way. Yeah, I feel like the more times they do that, the better the better they will be at Absolutely. doing it in the future. Absolutely, because think about, think about veterans or current serving with trauma, or even as you were saying, first responders. When you're not in your body, you're no longer in charge of your situation. You mm-hmm. feel helpless and hopeless. You feel out of control. It's like you're not driving your vehicle anymore. So what we want to do is give guys modalities where they feel immediately empowered, they're back in the driver's seat, and they feel as if they have some sense of power and ability to act on their lives. Mm-hmm. That's what you want to do. What kind of responses from this are you getting from the people you're seeing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> you know, this is in America, so I can shoot my mouth off. It's not in Australia. <laughs> I don't. But, you know, look, even in, even in America, we have the evidence-based approaches. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the things where a lot of money and a lot of politics have been put into it, and... So it proves it works. Mm-hmm. However, some of those things, it's like somebody, where was I? There was a veteran who said, every veteran is different. Mm-hmm. So how come we have health professionals out there applying one or two modalities to everyone with a one-size-fits-all approach? Mm-hmm. How do we do that? How, how, do we, how can we say we know what somebody wants? We know the brain is such a complex mechanism that we can't guess what mm-hmm. a bloke needs. And how can we insist that guys have to fit into our reality when that modality could be, I'm going to take you into the worst situation and we're going to, let's say, desensitize you. Mm-hmm. And inside, the guy is is in a very disempowered position. He's screaming, look, I don't really want to go there, but that's what he's been given. So I, I, I think that in many ways we need to have more modalities that come from the brain and the body and also we have to have a number of tools where a guy can tell us what it is he wants to start off with. So when a guy walks into my room, I ask him one question. What would you like to work with and where would you like to begin? That immediately shows respect. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, veterans don't like being told what to do, for one thing. <laughs> and so when we, when, we, when we approach their territory with care and respect... And we ask them where they want to begin. So a veteran will often say to me, look, I had this incident. I don't want to get into it. Okay, I'm just letting you know. And I go, that's cool. I go, let's, let's turn around and walk back a couple of hundred kilometers, a couple of hundred meters to the perimeters of it. Can you find a place where you can stop? And from there, you're willing to just have a look at the view. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about what's upregulating your body. So I give them choice. I, I follow. I don't lead. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the modality I use is something called brain spotting. I use that a lot, apart from everything else. And that's a really gentle approach, which looks at two things. One is the relationship. So a lot of the things that heal the guys I work with is they can say what body smelled like. They can say, no, I really miss hunting people. They can talk about the smell of burning bodies. They can talk about the fear or, or, or the violence that they experience. And I go, you know what? I understand Whereas for a lot of veterans to verbalize that to non-veteran population, there's always an anxiety that they're going to be judged. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, look, I think to just bring it together, we should be asking people where they want to begin and how we can walk with them rather than superimposing our modality on them. And look, that's just a personal viewpoint. Mm-hmm. 
Now, if, if you see someone struggling, is there an easy way for someone who's not a mental health professional to approach that in like a very easy way besides, hey, you want to get a beer or something like that? You know, I think the first thing is not to ask too many questions. You know, if mm-hmm. you see somebody struggling, you know, you can ask, hey, mate, are you okay? Generally, see what they say, but don't deepen it. Don't open it up because mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're opening them up into their ambush territory. At that point, be very clear. You're going to be able to contain and manage that. Mm-hmm. You know, often I like your ideas. You go for a walk, um, go for uh, fruit juice, <laughs> nothing like a dose of alcohol on top of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a sense of being present. You know, what we want when we're struggling is we don't want somebody to unpack stuff. We just want to feel a human presence next to us. Mm-hmm. And you know, what we know in any healing modality, it's less about the tool you use than the quality of presence, care, and respect. And mm-hmm. that applies in for professionals and non-professionals. So just hang with a mate. Just mm-hmm. talk to him. You know, put your arm around him if he's not too sensitive about that. Go for a walk. Bullshit with him. Just tell him you're there. Mm-hmm. Simple stuff. Human stuff. No, yeah, I know one of the big things that we've seen over here is the tendency to isolate. And so I've always yes. felt like stuff like that, if nothing else, takes steps to toning down the isolation. Yes. Yes. And we know with the veteran population, they do tend to isolate quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, because the isolation, or anybody with trauma, because what you're trying to avoid is an overload of stimuli around you. Mm-hmm. So again, we need to respect the fact that when guys are isolated, they can sometimes only tolerate certain amounts of contact. So we need to be guided. You know, the question I'd always ask somebody is, and I say to the guys, in between sessions, if you need me, just give me a shout, give me a ring, send me a a text, but I'll be guided by what you want. I don't want to crash into your territory. Mm -hmm. So we need to be guided. Look, if we sense, whether it's a professional or not, that somebody is at risk, you know, if they're talking about killing themselves, then we have a responsibility to bring support in. You know, if I've got a guy who wants to kill himself, um, or I get a phone call from a bloke's partner that, you know, he's talking about killing himself, I'm going to call the cops and the ambulance, regardless of whether it fractures the relationship, because mm-hmm. I'd rather have an angry person who's alive than a dead person, because I've not wanted to step in and save a life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I think as long as we know if somebody's at risk, do the right thing. If they're not at risk, be guided by what they want from you. Don't push it, and don't let your anxiety get in the way. Don't ask too many questions. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. We're kind of moving a little bit more toward your book, actually. We're kind of running a little time. Can you tell me a little bit about your, about your book, Which Way Is Your Claymore Facing? Yeah. You know, uh, originally what happened with the Rhodesians was I was working with a lot. I, I do a lot of I do free work with Rhodesian veterans mm-hmm. all over the world. And the idea was that I couldn't get to that many people. So I contracted with a publishing company run by veterans in South Africa that I would write a book. And it was going to be books of stories from men and their wives and their kids. And every time I tried to write it, it was like, I just can't write a book. It's just too much here. And I went into overload and backed off from it. And then last December, I read um, Admiral McRaven's book, um, Make Your Bed, mm-hmm. the ex-seal commander. And it's a little book with core wisdom. And I went, that's it. That's, that's what I need to do. And I'd already written a lot. So mm-hmm. a lot of my... Not, a lot of my um, wisdom, I guess, comes from like running ultra marathons and how you stay coherent when you're hitting the wall. So I wrote this book with 
core lessons, core techniques, core strategies, operational neuroscience, tools for tools to bring into um, your relationship. It's a really simple book. It's got a couple of poems in. It's got a letter a veteran can give to his partner. He can modify it. So it's a little book about quarter inch thick. It can fit in a guy or a girl, a woman's back pocket, and it's just something they can draw on. So the idea was to create a book that guys could take with them, write notes on, and just draw tools and simple strategies mm-hmm. and inform them about this is the territory I'm in. So I eventually got it done in about four months because I just had to pull a lot of material together mm-hmm. from what I'd done previously and contracted um, Amazon's publishing company to publish the book. And um, what I've done, because I don't need to make, this is, all this work is my is my service. Mm-hmm. You know, I work with the veterans and I work as a, in a school full time. So this is not something I need to generate income. So mm-hmm. I managed to bring it down to, I think the ebook was about, the Kindle was about 99 cents and the book was about $4. Like Amazon wanted me to go below that. So it's a resource that anybody can get. Mm-hmm. I just want to get it out there. You know, it's having good success with, it's with the Honor Foundation and they've given some nice reviews and I'm just trying to get it out everywhere. That's it really. Just get it out. I'm, I'm happy to post books at author costs. At cost, I get nothing out of it to various mm-hmm. organizations and I'm just doing that day after day, week after week. I wish it had been around when I was going through certain things when I was getting out. I feel like it would have been, it would have been nice to be able to read through other people's perspectives of what was going on. Uh, and I wish I wish I was around when I was going through my stuff. <laughs> uh, in your book, what do you find people struggle with the most? I find the big thing at the moment is guys and men and women transitioning to civilian life. And only recently I was working with a guy who just went, geez, I'm so stressed and so overwhelmed and I don't understand why. I've never been like this. So I'm finding people are not tracking the complexity of transitioning to civilian mm-hmm. life. So they're stressed, they're angry, they're uptight, impacting on their relationships, parenting, work and socialization. So we start to look at things like what is, how does military territory differ from civilian territory? How can you use the wisdom from military territory and bring that into your civilian in civilian territory, um, loss of tribe, loss of identity, loss of purpose, loss of, in civilian territory, it's all random. There's no authority process. So you don't know where you stand. So all of these things are impacting on guys simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So I'm finding more and more that's the big one. Mm-hmm. That's the big one. Because I actually s- call civilian territory as the new operational zone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you find, or how do you teach people to actually survive and live their lives in this new operational zone when all they've known for years is just what you think about in the military community? I, and I, in a way, I guess what I do is I create, I create a map. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what you want is guys to have a map which they understand and a compass to navigate their way through it. So first of all, I look at the military brain and how the military brain doesn't just change when we move into civilian territory. So it may have a way of speaking. It may have a way of communicating. It may have attitudes around authority um, and who can talk to who and how we can talk. You know, the military brain is very geared for, for respect and reliability, dependability, but in civilian life, it's not always like that. So I explain how civilian territory can be quite challenging Again, I'm giving them tools all the time to help them down-regulate so they stay in their bodies as they're learning to navigate. I explain why 
they are experiencing the things they do. Why are you stressed in civilian territory? And I normalize. So I help them reframe so they don't pathologize or think there's something wrong with it. So I'm doing all of that to help them integrate into a new territory, giving them a map and a compass to move through it. Okay. Plus, plus Adam, you know what I always say is it's not about leaving your warrior behind. It's about integrating your warrior with your civilian. Mm -hmm. When you put the two together, you have a better human being. Absolutely. I know when you get out, you have to change a lot of stuff about you, how you talk to people. I had to tone down my language, really, tone, tone down my stories. First yes. time first time you tell your, your mother or your grandmother uh, a story, and you're like, you see that look on their face, like, ooh, maybe I don't tell someone that story anymore. And that's the other thing I tell the guys is, is you know, really be careful about what you share with people that are close to you who mm -hmm. are civilians, um, because they're things that they're just not ready to hear, and... You know, recently uh, my wife and I were interviewed by um, another organization in America. And for the first time, she actually heard me talking. And at the end of it, she said, wow, she said, I really got to know you a lot more. And, you know, I realized that I don't actually talk about a lot of stuff. And I think this is typical of a, of a lot of veterans. I think the one thing a lot of partners actually struggle with is that they often develop a lot of resentment because their partners have more, appear to have more intimate connections with their tribe than with them. Mm -hmm. And so, again, a, an important part of the work, by the way, is I work with the wives or the husbands of veterans mm -hmm. to help them understand the territory and why their partners are doing the things they do. So we normalize and I give them a map to work. That's just as important. Our last guest actually was the first my veteran spouse we've had on. And I know a lot of people don't really think about that going in, that, like the impact that makes on the spouse of a veteran or a first responder going through this, because they th go through a lot of the same things, but a little bit different, obviously. Yes. And, you know, especially when a veteran is struggling with trauma or a first responder is struggling with trauma, what they do in a way is they bring the war home. So they hypervigilant, they reactive, and soon the family are walking around them on eggshells, hypervigilant and situationally aware. So the war enters the home. Mm -hmm. So it's quite important. I always encourage the people I sit with to bring their partners in for a session, and we just do like an operational debrief. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that, everybody's breathing because they're sharing a common framework. Mm -hmm. Have you found it helps for, like, obviously later on, depending on each person, it helps to have that their spouse here telling certain stories to the spouse and kind of like, look, this is this is a little bit what I've been with been through. Uh, here's why I don't talk about it, stuff like that. I think, I think certain, I think the core details of it probably not a good idea because, mm -hmm. you know, as veterans, we kind of we rewired. We desensitize. So the majority of veterans I've sat with have a fairly flattish emotional world. They don't mm -hmm. have massive highs. You know, they they quietly calm in, in, in the majority of situations. And whereas civilians will have, I think civilians have a far bigger, <laughs> like if it's a sine wave, it goes mm -hmm. up and down a lot more. And um, so I think we have to be careful about what we share because it's often not received well, but we can start to say things like, stuff happened to me and I'm really struggling with a lot of grief. Or, you know, every now and then, I don't know why, I guess it's part of what I'm doing and integrating, is I just don't feel good and I feel really irritable and on edge. 
and I'll let you know when I'm like that. So I'm going to take some time out mm-hmm. and it's not about you. So I think it's more important that we clue people in. It's mm-hmm. like when a woman can say to a man, you know, look, I'm just going through that time of my menstrual cycle. <laughs> so it's best you behave yourself and not say anything to trigger uh-huh. me. And the guy goes, oh, okay, okay, I'm informed. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to also inform our partners when we are going through various ups and downs. Mm-hmm. I think those things are more important than the nitty-gritties of what it looked like when your mate got killed. No, yeah. And Lucy, you know, those, th- those things are buried so deeply talking about them can also place a bloke at risk. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, as a, as a lot of guys have have since realized, like, when certain, like, I feel like they can kind of pick up on certain things, like when certain times of the month yeah. are. Sorry about our female yes. uh, listeners. Um, I feel like hopefully spouses can kind of pick up on certain cues, like, oh, look, this this is obviously a bad day. This is, he's struggling Correct. more today, or she's struggling more today. Correct. And kind of take their cue Correct. a little bit from that. Correct. Yeah, and I think that's something I really want to stress is I know I use the masculine derivative and that's probably mm-hmm. because the majority of the people I've sat with over 15 or 16 years have been men. But certainly women who are in operational zones, whether they're nurses or in various um, other capable uh, capabilities, you know, they also struggle. I mean, I saw a nurse who said, you know, she loved these men that she was working with and they would arrive back with body parts missing and she really struggled. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's a territory which impacts on all, regardless of where you've been. I've seen guys who simply just saw bodies being offloaded from choppers with terrific trauma. I've worked with special force guys who've seen a lot of action and have no trauma. Mm-hmm. So it's a strange thing, this concept of trauma, but it doesn't matter what territory you're in, if you're in the operational zone, and whether you're a male or a female, we have an impact. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. First, I'd like to give you a little bit of appreciation for everything you're doing, especially for your book, to kind of help everyone around that you can't be with personally. I feel like you're doing a lot for our community. I just want to say thank you uh, about that. And also, for people that want to like kind of keep track of what you're doing, do you have like a website? Yeah, so it's um, www.barryswarstein, so that's B-A-R-R-Y. Z-W-O-R-E-S for Sierra, T-I-N-E dot com. Mm-hmm. They can go on the website. I'm busy growing a, a YouTube channel. There's blogs with the tools that I just talked to you about. Mm-hmm. There's YouTube clips that I make regularly. There's um, There are um, blogs I'm writing. There's no there's no money involved in that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a service website. The only thing is a link to the books. They can join that. They can join... They can join me on my Facebook page. They can join me on LinkedIn, my Instagram page. Um, they can also contact me. They're welcome to send me a message on the email thing. And there's also capability for voice messages. And I'm happy to make contact with anyone as I've done with you today. The mm-hmm. more I can get out there sharing what it is I've learned, the happier I am. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. All right, so I always finish up my episodes with the same question. If you could tell someone who's struggling three things that you believe that will help them the most, what do you think it would be? I think, you know, I was thinking about this one, and I think the first thing is what I would say is, listen, Nate, I'm going to walk with you because people who are struggling feel incredibly alone. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is I'm just going to walk with you. I'm going to be by your side. The second thing is... Um, I'd really like to understand what it is you have to tell me about where you're struggling. So I don't impose, but I tell them, look, one, you're not alone. Two, I'm here to listen to you. Just give me what you want, and I'm just going to listen. And the third thing is, 
just start from where you want to begin and I'll walk with you along that. So I don't tell them. So they feel safe, they feel heard, and they no longer feel alone. Oh, well, fantastic. Well, Barry, thank you very, very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure, mate. And thank you for this opportunity and for making contact with me and for making the time to talk. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no, absolutely. Much appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Hope to have you on okay, soon. Cheers. Yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks for listening to One's Too Many. If you like what you've just heard or you think it would benefit someone you know, share this episode and pass on our web address, onestoomany.com, to someone you believe might need it. And please leave us a positive review on iTunes so we can continue to spread our message. Be sure to check out our website for previous podcasts and check us out on Facebook at One's Too Many and Instagram at One's Too Many underscore official. This has been Adam Salters. And remember, you matter. You've got this and you're not alone. Thank you.